Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message Authentic. All right, and so on the day of Pentecost, I'm gonna go back and do a quick review to catch everybody up since we're in chapter eight. But on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, you guys remember that 120 people, followers of Jesus were praying and the Holy Spirit descended upon them and the church at that moment was born. And so later that day, Peter, what did he do? He went out and he preached this powerful message to thousands of people. He preached a powerful message that Jesus is not just some good teacher from Galilee, that he actually is the Christ, the son of the living God. And the result of that powerful message was that about 3,000 people put their faith, their trust in Jesus as their Messiah, and then they followed the Lord in baptism. They believed first, then they were baptized in his name. And so after that, what we see is that all these new believers, they began to follow Christ in the context of their local church. Now I have to emphasize that. They followed Christ in the context of their local church. So many Lone Ranger Christians, I call them, think that they can be a follower of Jesus outside of the church, that I can just go do my own thing. And it's not true. That is not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity says that we follow Jesus in the context of the local church, which is his church, which he promised back in, back in Matthew 16. And so they followed him. It says in Acts 2.42 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. They were not nominal Christians, they were devoted to those things, and the Bible says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so as this church, this local church in Jerusalem began to grow and expand, its influence in the community also grew and also expanded. And this made some people very happy, but it made other people really upset. Namely, the Sanhedrin, the 71 most powerful men in Israel, the ruling council of Israel. They were upset of the growing influence of this church, these followers of Jesus, and that led to an intense persecution against the apostles. And if you remember, as we've gone through Acts chapter one through chapter seven, that this intense persecution, it included beatings, it included imprisonment, it included threats, but nothing could stop the apostles and nothing could stop the believers in this church from living for the Lord and, from, and for honoring the Lord with their lips and their lives. Last week, we saw this persecution against the church go to a whole new level with the execution of the first Christian martyr. Does anybody remember his name? Stephen. Stephen. As the stones were being hurled at Stephen, mob violence, as the, the rocks are hitting him in the head and the shoulder and the arm and, and, and the torso, as he's being um, palmated by these stones, he knows the end is near. And he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then the Bible says that Stephen, look at, look at me, fell asleep. Now, see if you were listening last week, what part of Stephen's being fell asleep, his body or his spirit? His body fell asleep or died. 
awaiting the resurrection, but spirits don't die, souls don't die. And immediately when the fatal bolt blow was struck, Stephen's spirit immediately went home to be with the Lord. And as the holy angels were carrying him to the throne room of God, Jesus, who was sitting at the right hand of the Father, he gets up. As you, if you were with me last week, you remember, Jesus is like, I'm gonna stand up for the first Christian martyr. And he stood up and no doubt he said, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome home. So now we pick it up in chapter eight. It says, and Saul, so everybody say Saul approved of his execution. We gotta talk about Saul, so let's hit the pause button here and go backwards to chapter seven, verse 58. In the midst of Stephen being stoned to death, it says halfway down verse 58 that the witnesses of this execution, more like mob violence, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named who? Saul, and so Saul, if you remember, was this up-and-coming Hebrew scholar. I mean, if anybody thinks they know the Old Testament, not even compared to how Saul knew the Old Testament. He's the up-and-coming Hebrew scholar. He was trained and taught at the feet of the famous rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel, in Acts 22.3 references that. This is the Saul who advanced in Judaism beyond many of his peers. Galatians 1.14. This was the guy who was the zealous Pharisee. Philippians chapter three, verse five. And it says that he approved of Stephen's stoning. Literally that he cast his vote for Stephen to be executed. This is why many scholars believe that Saul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And so Saul was his Hebrew name, but we know him better by his Roman name, the name of Paul. Paul, the apostle, who is arguably, the, listen to this, the greatest apologist and evangelist that Christianity has ever had in 2,000 years. And I, I love new Christians because they don't know anything about Saul and Paul. <laughs> All this is new to them. And so they are confronted as they're reading through Acts with this man, and they're like, what changed this guy? What happened to make Saul, the persecutor of the church, become Paul, the preacher of the church. Well, it's called meeting the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, which we're gonna talk about when we get to Acts chapter nine. How many of you guys believe that just like Jesus could change a, a man who was persecuting the church to a man who was living for the Lord? How many of you guys believe if Jesus can change a man like Saul, that he can still change lives today? Do you believe that really, honestly? I mean, come on, why are we here, right? If we didn't believe that, we might as well be out on the golf course or on the boat. But we truly, and I believe you believe that, otherwise why would you be here to worship the Lord and to hear his word being taught? And so, before he became a changed man, this Saul hated the church of Jerusalem. He hated their growing influence upon his fellow Jews. And so he decides, I'm gonna take the fight to them. And his stall starts when he gives his approval for the stoning, the execution of Stephen. And so now we pick it up again in verse one. It says, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day, 
a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, the local church in Jerusalem. And they, remember this is a mega church, thousands and thousands of people in this church. And they were all scattered throughout the regions, this is interesting, of Judea and what's the next word? Samaria. Except the apostles. The apostles stayed by their post in Jerusalem. Devout men, verse two, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So after Saul approved of Stephen's death, he became the ringleader of this intense persecution against Christians, followers of Jesus, in and around the city of Jerusalem. Concerning this time in his life, he wrote later to the church at Galatia. I will put that Galatians verse up on the screen. He said, for you have heard of my former life. By the way, how many of you, how many of you are glad that um, God can deliver us from our former life, right? For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church, check this out, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So Saul becomes enraged at the followers of Jesus and he decides, I'm gonna go after these people violently. I'm gonna destroy, it was his mission in life to destroy the church. He hated Peter, he hated John, he hated James. He hated the influence of the apostles and the influence of the first century church. It says in verse three that he ravaged the church. How many of you guys have Bibles that says that he made havoc of the church, right? So um, what's the idea here? The idea here is like a wild animal hunting its prey, and then when it finds its prey, that wild animal attacks its prey. And this is Saul before he meets Jesus in the next chapter. What does he do? He hunts down Christians house to house. And not only that, not only does he hunt them down, once he finds them, he imprisons them, he attacks them and drags them off to prison. Years later, he says um, to King Agrippa, he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to, what's the word there? death. Now please notice they were put to death. In other words, it wasn't just Stephen. Saul cast his vote for more than one Christian to be put to death. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Again, this is why a lot of scholars believe he's part of the Sanhedrin at this time in his life. And I punished them often in all the synagogues in all the synagogues. These are buildings where God is worshiped, okay? And so I, want, I just want everybody to look at me for a second. I'm, I'm gonna try to get you to put yourself in the sandals of the Christians in Acts chapter eight. Imagine right now if all of a sudden all these doors around this building where we worship God, imagine if all these doors were kicked in. And all of a sudden, guys, imagine if people came in and grabbed their wives by the hair and began to drag them out into the foyer and out into the street, putting them into government cars and taking them to prison along with you. That's what's happening right now in the Bible. 
Now, we have a hard time because we live in this bubble. And by the way, I thank God for the bubble. I thank God for the United States of America. I thank God for our religious freedoms. I thank God that we can exercise our religious beliefs and practices without the fear of any government um, interference at all. And I'm just wondering, do you thank God also for that freedom we have right now? That is a blessing. (laughs) But they didn't have it. They didn't have religious freedom. And so there were people coming in and literally attacking them, beating them, threatening them, and dragging them to prison. He says, I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so Saul, once he hunted them, once he arrested them, he interrogated them. And during the interrogation, he tried to get them to blaspheme the precious name of Jesus. And I can't even imagine, I don't even want to, what he tried to make these Christians say against the name of Jesus. But he tried to get them to blaspheme that most holy name. And when they did not recant their faith, he saw to it that some of them were put to death. Before we move on, I gotta tell you, again, because we live in an American bubble, I gotta tell you that right now, there are thousands and thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are experiencing this. And we need to be aware of it. And we, they need our prayers. And I, I'm so guilty of not praying for the martyrs and for the persecuted church. But they, they need our prayers. And by the way, if the Lord lays it on your heart, they need our financial support because it is illegal in many places in the world today to be a Christian, and it is illegal to openly be a Christian and share your faith and live for the Lord. If you want a modern day example of this, I recommend the movie, um, The Least of These. The Least of These is the true story about Graham Staines, played by Stephen Baldwin. So Graham Staines um, was a missionary to India so he and his family went to India and they went there, there to live for the Lord, to share the love of Christ. They ministered among the poor people of India, especially those in India who had leprosy. I'm not gonna give too much away of the movie except to say this, that the Graham Staines story is evidence that intense persecution, vicious persecution, still occurs today in certain areas around the world. I highly recommend that movie My wife and I saw it in the theater about six months ago and now it's on Amazon Prime and other places. But back to the Bible, Saul is raging against the church and because of his persecution, many of them leave Jerusalem and now we're gonna pick it up in verse four. So right now, if you're looking at Acts eight, verse four, say amen. Okay, just just keep following along, especially if you're new. This is what we do every Sunday, verse by verse. Okay, so verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so everybody look at me as Saul tried to stomp out the fire of Christianity in Jerusalem, he unknowingly kicked up some embers, some hot embers. And those embers started to fly around far and wide and they landed in other areas and they started fires in other areas around the Mediterranean basin. And so what happened here is that all of a sudden, people who are on fire for Jesus in Jerusalem, 
they had to flee Jerusalem and they go to other areas and now they're sharing their faith in other areas of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Do you know him? And all of a sudden what's happening now is that the, the gospel is being spread. Ladies and gentlemen, without even knowing it, Saul was used to spread the gospel even before he became Paul. Think about this for a second. What God meant for good, I'm sorry, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Right, what Satan meant for evil, I'm gonna use Saul to persecute the church. God meant for good, I'm gonna take my people from Jerusalem and send them to other areas so that they can share the love of Jesus in other areas. Romans 8, 28 has always been true. It was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. Listen to the word of God. All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. You may be going through a real difficult time right now. You may be uncomfortable, you don't know what's going on in your life, you're confused. Here's what you need to know, that if you love God and you're one of his called ones, then he's going to use your difficulty ultimately for your good and for his glory. This is the confidence that we have as Christians in a sovereign God who really is large and in charge and really does oversee all the affairs that go on in our lives. And so then we should thank, thank God for that. It's fine to praise God for that. And so the next time you're, you go through a hard time, which probably is gonna be this week, <laughs> just say to yourself, it's for my good and his glory. It's for my good and his glory. Keep reminding yourself. I gotta, I gotta emphasize this, um, number one, because it's my responsibility not just to teach the content of the Bible, to, to, to apply it in your lives as a pastor. But I also, I have to teach this right now because here's what you need to know. What you need to know is that I've been doing this for a long time and I've seen so many people get uppercutted by a hard, difficult trial in their life and they're gone. They're gone from the church, they're gone from the Lord, right? Because they really thought that the reason for God's existence was to bless them. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason for God's existence is not to bless you. The reason for God's existence is to bring glory to his name. We are called to bring glory to his name. And so God is large in charge. He's using all things, both the good, seemingly good, seemingly bad things. They're all working together for good, ultimately for your good and for his glory. And so this is what he does right here in the scriptures. It says in verse four that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And by the way, you might say, well, I thought that was north of Jerusalem. Everything is down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is really up high. So Philip, who was in Jerusalem, verse five, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the who? The Christ, the Christ. And so like Stephen before him, Philip was a faithful servant in the local church of Jerusalem. Now I really want you to pay attention here. Philip, like Stephen, was a faithful servant in the local church of Jerusalem. And I'm so grateful 
For those in this local church who are faithful servants of the Lord, right? Who, who understand the vision that we're called to help people of all ages become lifelong followers of Christ, who know by the leading of the Holy Spirit, this is my local church, and who have decided to follow Jesus in the context of the local church, and they don't just come and sit and hear another message, and as Pastor Aaron said, go home unchanged. They don't come to church with a motive of what's in it for me. They've grown beyond that in their Christianity, and the reason they come to church is not how can I benefit or what can I get, but what can I give? Please say the word give. give. <laughs> this is why God gives us spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. I'm going off into other messages right now. I gotta really get back to Acts. But listen, he gives us spiritual gifts so that we can be givers, not takers. And so thank you again from the bottom of my heart as your pastor for those of you who have bought into this local church and your faithful servants like Stephen and Philip were in the in local church of Jerusalem. I so appreciate and every pastor, I'm telling you, on the face of the planet, so appreciates his core group in the church, those who choose to connect and serve and grow and invite and to give. And so Philip was one of the seven men of good reputation who were full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Philip was one of those guys who was put in oversight with the six other guys. Do you remember this? Um, over, he oversaw the, the, the ministry to the widows. Okay, this is Philip. And so as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem, Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. Now I've gotta pause here and I gotta teach you some about Samaria to set you up for something that's gonna happen a little later in the message, okay? And so city of Samaria, Samaria. Samaria was the ancient capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. If you guys have read your Old Testament, you know that after the time of Solomon, there was a civil war and a split in Israel, and so the two southern tribes were divided. The southern kingdom, Judah, was divided from the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes of Israel. Samaria was the capital of the 10 northern tribes. They went apostate. They went, King James Version, a whoring after other gods. And God said, okay, I'm patient, I'm patient, I'm patient, year after year after year. Finally, he's like, time's up, and here comes the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, 722 BC, come in, and they conquer the 10 northern tribes, the northern kingdom, and listen to this, they deport the middle and upper class of Israelites out of the land beyond Damascus. It's called the, um, the, the captivity, captivity of Israel, the Assyrian captivity. And they leave in the land the poor, the lower class of Israelites. Then these big bad Assyrians, what do they do? They go to other areas of the world that they've conquered and they take Gentiles and they move those Gentiles into the 10 northern tribes area, the city of Samaria and the, the surrounding area, Gentiles come in and guess what the Gentiles do? They intermarry with the poor low class of Israelites that were left in the land. And these interracial marriages produced a people called the Samaritans who lived in a region just above Judea. Okay, so let's look at our New Testament map so everybody can get a visual of this. If you notice, in the, toward the bottom half of your screen, you have the big brown area. That's called the region of Judea. 
Okay, and so the capital of Judea, of course, is Jerusalem. I think it's underlined, my eyesight's not that great, but Jerusalem is there, that's the capital. If you see the brown area of Judea, please say amen. Then you go north and you have the blue area, um, and that's Samaria. This is where those interracial marriages took place. This is where um, Jews and uh, Israelites and Gentiles um, married together and produced this area called the, the, the called Samaria or, the, or uh, produced a people called the Samaritans. And then um, above that, you got Jesus country. Please go with us to Israel. We go every two years. It's beautiful. And that's called the Galilee where the Sea of Galilee is. And so there's lots of tension in between the Jews in Judea and the Samaritans up in Samaria. There's lots of racial tension. We think racial, racism and, race, and racial tension is just something in the last couple hundred years. It's been going on forever. There's racial tension and there's also religious tension. There's racial tension because the Jews in Judea, not all of them, Ladies and gentlemen, you gotta be, gotta be so careful, especially in this culture of the world of anti-Semitism that we're so very careful when we speak about the Jews. Um, there were thousands and tens of thousands of Jews who loved the Lord and had humble hearts and followed Jesus, okay? But many other Jews in Judea, they believed they were pure Jews, and when they looked at their neighbors to the north, they called them, quote unquote, half-breeds because of the interracial marriages between Gentiles and the Israelites that had happened for the last 700 years. And so there's lots of racial animosity. There's also religious animosity or tension. The Jews in Judea, what city do you think they worshiped in? You tell me. Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, the temple, and rightfully so. That's what the Old Testament taught. But the Samaritans, they refuse to go down to Jerusalem. They're like, that's not where we worship. We have our own temple on Mount Gerizim up in Samaria, which by the way, I did a little digging. Thank you, Chuck Swindoll. And I found out that the Jews actually destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim in 128 BC. Okay, and so now we're in Acts chapter eight. We're in the first century AD and you have these Samaritans and they're still folding their arms saying, no, we're not going to Jerusalem to worship. We worship on our holy mountain. We worship on Mount Gerizim. And there's so much tension, ladies and gentlemen, between the Jews in Judea and the Samaritans in Samaria that when the Jews in Judea wanted to travel up to Galilee, maybe go take a swim in the Sea of Galilee with their family on holiday or whatever, they would not go through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River from west to east, and they would go north through Perea and the Decapolis along the Jordan River, and then cross back over to the left or to the west into Galilee. And so racial tension, religious tension, but here's the good news. Who in John 4 went to Samaria to minister and love those people. What's his name? Jesus, John chapter four. You remember the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan. And guess what? Jesus loved her. Please, I'm gonna go deviate from my notes for just a second here, but please, please hear this. It's, it's one thing to marry people who have the same faith that you have. I agree with that, I think that's great. 
That's one thing. It's another thing to think that I'm a part of a certain race and because I'm part of a certain race, I'm superior to other people. It's one thing to say, I'm a Jew, I love Yahweh, and I'm only gonna marry a Jew who loves Yahweh in the Old Testament, praise the Lord. But it's another thing to be a Jew and to think that you're superior to the Samaritans to the north, that you're better than them because you're a quote unquote pure Jew. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's the same thing today. It's one thing to marry a Christian and make sure you marry a Christian. But it's another thing to say, because I'm part of a certain race, I'm better, or my race is superior. Ladies and gentlemen, if you really think in your heart of hearts, examine your heart, if you really think in your heart of heart that you're superior to other people who have a different skin color than you have, you are a racist and you need to repent before God. 100%. There is no race that's superior to any other race. We are all made in the image of God. And this is why parents, you gotta be so careful with your words to your little kids. Don't ever tell your kids you're worthless. They're not worthless, they're made in the image of God. They're priceless. There's a difference between the word worthless and the word unworthy. Guess what? None of us are worthless, we're made in the image of God. But all of us, we're unworthy. We're sinners who need a savior. Do you see that? And by the way, if a white person wants to marry a black person, praise the Lord. If they're both born again Christians, who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so, there's this racial animosity that's going on between the Jews and the Samaritans, but guess what? Jesus broke through racial barriers and he went to Samaria to minister to the people in John chapter four and thank God Philip now follows in his master's sandals and he in Acts chapter eight goes to Samaria because he knows that God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. And so now Philip is in Samaria and look at verse six. It says, and the crowds in Samaria with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So demons in the name of Jesus are being cast out. Sick people in the name of Jesus are being healed. And what's the result in verse eight? So there was much, what's the word? Joy in that city. And so the Samaritans heard Philip talking about Jesus. And then they saw Philip in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit performing miracle signs and wonders. And they were filled with joy. By the way, before I move on, please don't buy into the erroneous belief that miracles, signs, and wonders only occurred in Bible times. Please do not buy into that erroneous belief. We're Christians, we're not deists. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And we should not allow secular humanism to influence our Christianity. Now, I believe it's true that God especially poured out miracle signs and wonders 
In the time of Moses, during the inauguration of the Old Covenant. In the time of Elijah and Elisha, during the time of those two prophets. And in the time of Jesus and the apostles with the inauguration of the New Covenant. But that does not believe that God says, I'm done doing miracles. He's still in the miracle business today, 100%. And by the way, for those of you who are undecided about whether or not God still performs miracles today, I'm gonna recommend something else. I recommended a movie, and I'm gonna recommend a, 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 an article from Christianity Today. It's called Real Raisings from the Dead, or Fake News. <laughs> I just read this three days ago. I was very impressed, because the author writes about documented modern-day cases of dead people, dead people, coming back to life as a result of Christians praying for them. Now, you may be undecided, you may be skeptical about it, I just challenge you to read the article and pray and decide um, for yourself. In the Bible, these miracles really happened and it produced joy in the city. Today, when God comes along and performs a genuine miracle, there's no joy in some churches, there's just skepticism. And we gotta get our hearts right with the Lord on that. God still does miracles today. And I know there's all this fake stuff going on and you guys heard me rant and rave about that in the past. I'm not gonna go back there. But God still does miracles today. Now, let me say this. Before we move on, let me say this. If I'm ever up here preaching and I fall over and I'm dead, do not pray for me to come back. <laughs> Don't do that. Just put yourself in my shoes for a second before you start to pray and think, what is Pastor Mike experiencing right now? And go pray for somebody else. Listen, I'm telling you, I'm dead serious here. If the holy, if the holy angels are escorting me into the throne room of God and all of a sudden Gabriel and Michael look at me and say, sorry bro, they're praying for you and start taking me back I'm gonna be so upset. I'm gonna wake up and just start swinging at people or something. Okay, you laugh, I'm serious. The security team's getting nervous. They're like, does he have a DNR or what? All right, so verse nine. Verse nine. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. What a joke, right? Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And so now we're introduced to a new character named Simon the Magician, he amazes people through his magic shows. His performances obviously are entertaining because everybody's raving, this is the great power of God. Apparently he believed his own press because in verse nine, even he believed that I'm somebody great. And so for a long time, people went to his magic shows and they paid, I'm sure, top dollar to go to his magic shows. But then a guy named Philip comes to town. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
And so can, can you kind of visualize this? And so the people of Samaria, they're going to the magic show and they're watching Simon and they're seeing him do his tricks. But then later Philip comes to town and he's preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, the name of Jesus. And he's, as God leads and the power of the Spirit leads, He's performing, God's performing through him, miracle signs and wonders. And all of a sudden they see the difference between a fraud and someone who's authentic. And all of a sudden Simon's not so great anymore. I don't care how much magic he knows. Um, Jesus, whom Philip preaches, he's Lord. He's the greatest of all. And what was their response to Philip's message? Check it out, verse 12. But when they, shout out the next word. Believed, everybody say believed. believed. Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were, what's the next word? Shout it out. <laughs> Baptized, both men and women. Do you see the order there? First they believed, then they were baptized. Ladies and gentlemen, there was no infant baptism or baptizing little kids who don't even understand the gospel, and then hopefully later they'll believe. You see, a lot of churches, they, they reverse the order. And that's not what the Acts shows, Acts 2. They believed Peter, then they were baptized. Here, they believe the gospel from the lips of Philip, then they're baptized. We're gonna have a baptism coming up here um, shortly. And if you've never been baptized since you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, uh, I wanna encourage you to be baptized. And now, um, it says in verse 13, that even Simon himself believed, quote unquote, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Why, because he wanted to be a lifelong follower of Christ? No. <laughs> And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so we're gonna discover in a little while that Simon's conversion is not authentic, right? He may have made a profession of faith, but he did not have a possession of faith. I'll show you why in just a second, but look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands, Peter and John laid their hands on them, the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now real quick, I just gotta say, you cannot take verse 17 and, and, and teach a doctrine, okay? You cannot take verse 17 and say, therefore, you know, you, people can only receive the Holy Spirit if there's the laying on of hands. No, 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 no. Keep the verses in the context because two chapters later, Peter's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles in Cornelius' house and right in the middle of the gospel presentation, they believe and the Holy Spirit comes in them without any laying on of hands. So let's rightly divide the word of truth, okay? And so when the apostles at the church of Jerusalem heard about the spiritual awakening in Samaria, they said, Peter, John, go down there. Why? Probably lots of reasons. Here's one reason why. It was the apostles' responsibility to investigate and authenticate spiritual movements. It was their job as apostles 
to make sure that this was legitimate, especially since it happened in Samaria. I took a long time and I taught you guys about some of the weird religious practices that had been going on in Samaria for centuries. And so Peter and John are sent, no doubt, one of the reasons they're sent is this authentic. So John MacArthur um, said this, this was a transitional period in which confirmation by the apostles was necessary to verify the inclusion of what kind of group of people? a new group of people into the church, Samaritans. Because of the animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans, it was essential for the Samaritans to receive the Spirit in the presence of the Jerusalem church for the purpose of maintaining a unified church, unified church. The delay, talking about the delay of the Spirit, also revealed the Samaritans' need to come under apostolic authority. And so after centuries of, of this division and animosity between the Jews um, and the Samaritans, after centuries of that kind of animosity and religious weirdness, the apostles had to make sure that the Samaritans knew that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in you all, Ephesians chapter four, five, and six. So Peter and John pray for them, and as they lay their hands on them, then they receive the Holy Spirit. And no doubt Peter and John are saying the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost is now happening to them. God's accepting Samaritans. This is authentic. Now, Let's talk just for a second about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth. Here's application again, okay? He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of who? The Holy Spirit within you, right here, right here. Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. So glorify God in your body. And so when a person puts their faith in Christ, the spirit of God comes inside of them and their body becomes a temple, right here, a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And so when the Holy Spirit comes in, it's so important, ladies and gentlemen, Christians, brothers and sisters, <laughs> it's so important when the spirit comes in that we no longer use our body for selfish reasons. He says it halfway down, you are not your own. It's so important that we don't use our body for selfish reasons, but we use our body for God's purposes, for God's glory, last sentence, so glorify God in your body. And so us, we should always be aware that the Holy Spirit of God is right here he lives inside of us, and his presence inside of us should motivate us every single day to make the right choices. I mean, think about this for a minute. Should we really, we should ask ourselves this week, should I be thinking these thoughts knowing that the Holy Spirit's right here? Should I be saying these words knowing the Holy Spirit's right here? Should I be doing these things that I'm doing knowing the Holy Spirit's right here? Should I really be dishonest and lie knowing the Holy Spirit's right here? Should I really be looking at that, whatever that is, knowing the Holy Spirit's right here? You get my, my gist, right? Last week, the Holy Spirit gives us both the desire and the power to keep the commandments of God. This is New Testament Christianity, New Covenant stuff. The Holy Spirit lives right here. Let him 
motivate you to make right choices that honor the Lord. Not only is salvation a free gift, by the way, the Holy Spirit right here is a free gift. But not everybody gets it. Not everybody in the crowd gets it. And so we're winding down now. Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them, at the end of verse 18, money. He's, this guy's not getting it saying, give me this power also so that on anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, all right, put your seatbelts on, okay? May your silver perish with you. Ouch. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. What matter? Uh, Christianity, (laughs) the Holy Spirit living in you. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Verse 22, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, uh, I'm sorry, pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And so Simon, the sorcerer, he thinks that the Holy Spirit is some kind of mysterious force or energy that he can control and manipulate. But how many of you guys know the Holy Spirit is not a force or energy? The Holy Spirit is a person, capital P, the third person of the Trinity. And we don't control him. We need to allow him to control us and submit our will to his will. And Simon's not getting any of this. Peter, give me this power also that whoever I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. What was his motive? And by the way, I'll pay you big bucks. His motive is he just wants another trick for his magic bag. His motive is that he can become a more powerful magician and draw larger crowds and get more money. That's his motive. Had nothing to do with being a lifelong follower of Christ. And how does Peter respond in verse 20? He says, may your silver, may your money perish with you. What is Peter saying? If you're with me, say amen. Amen. He's saying, Simon, may your money go to hell with you. By the way, that doesn't sound very secret sensitive, does it? May your money go to hell with you. That's what the word perish means, go to hell. Peter would never say that to a child of God but he will say it to a fake believer named Simon. Last verse, verse 24. And Simon answered, he's scared, you know, pray for me. Pray for me to the Lord that none of what you said may come upon me. Now, there's a problem with that response right there. Peter told him what he needs to do. Did you see it in verse 22? He said, you need to repent. But his response is, Peter, pray for me. Okay, so what's the problem with that response? The problem is Peter could pray for Simon all day long, but Peter could not repent for Simon. Simon had to repent for himself and get right with the Lord. Whatever happened to Simon the magician, according to 
Arrhenius, the second century church father, he became a false teacher and his heresies were part of what's called incipient Gnosticism. In other words, he was a false teacher that the devil used to introduce Gnosticism, which is a false teaching. I think Pastor Will preached on this um, some months ago, but Gnosticism, a false teaching that did so much damage to the people of God and the church for such a long time. So sad. I'm gonna close with a quote from one of my favorite Bible scholars who's with the Lord now, Warren Wearsby. And that is that Simon heard the gospel, saw miracles, gave a profession of faith in Christ, was baptized, and yet was never born again. I had lunch years ago with Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, with, I don't know, 20 or so other pastors. And he was talking about some of his greatest fears in life. And at that time, he said, one of my greatest fears is that there's people in my own church who've never been born again. They go through religious motions, but they've never been born of the Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, how are we born again? It's when we have authentic faith in Jesus Christ. It's when we truly believe. And, and the Lord led me to give this example, and I know over half of you know it, but I'll do it again in obedience to the Lord. If I'm standing here next to this chair and I say, I believe that this chair is strong enough to hold my weight, does that make me a true believer? Here's where you say no, Pastor Mike. No. I can say I believe, I believe all day long, but I'm not a true believer until I come over here and I rely, everybody please say rely, rely personally on the chair to hold my weight. Now I'm a true believer. Now, follow this, follow this. We can stand over here and we can say, I believe certain facts about Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he was born of a virgin. I believe he died on a cross for the sins of the world. I believe he rose again. We can say those facts and understand those facts in our head. But does that make us a true believer? Listen, don't get me wrong. Those facts, those truths are essential. We can't get Jesus wrong. They're essential. But we're not true believers until we go to Christ and we rely on Jesus Christ. We take his promises to us to the bank that we believe that he didn't just die for the world. Listen to this, he died for me. He paid the price for my sins. I'm a sinner, I deserve hell. He paid for hell on the cross for me. He rose again for me. He's my savior, he's my Lord. And when he says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I've received him and therefore I Trust and rely on the fact that I'm a child of God and he can get me home before the dark. That's what it means to be a true believer. Listen. It's not just this. It's this. It's this.